Well, good morning. It's good to see you all, and Merry Christmas. Happy Christmas Eve. And uh, we are gathered together, the few, the proud, the Christmas Eve attenders, Third Avenue Baptist Church. We're happy so many of our fellow church members are with family during this time and have traveled. No doubt some family members have traveled here. But, uh, you know, anytime you've got a lot of students and others and young people, you have more people traveling out than you have people traveling in. So it's the glory of uh, having them all here during the semester and, and the glory of having young families. And uh, I'll simply say as a grandparent, it's a really good thing when the families come home and bring those grandkids. But right now, we get to turn to God's Word, and we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and I'll begin in prayer. Father, we are just so thankful for all you give us, every single letter of your Word, every word of it. And uh, Father, we pray that the words you've given us in the book of Hebrews will strike our hearts and our minds on this Christmas Eve. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So I think one of the difficult issues for Christians is uh, avoiding what uh, the English theologians of the 19th century called the domestication of theology or the domestication of transcendence. And uh, a, a part, of the, part of the reason for this is that the early modern age saw a theological approach, which basically became distilled into what we would call theological liberalism, of uh, seeking to collapse down something of the distance between humanity and God. And, uh, you know, you can see the trouble that would create. If you're going to collapse the distance that is described in Scripture as infinite, then you're going to do an awful lot of theological mischief along the way. But as is the case in so many things, uh, there is a recognition of problems that arise in piety or uh, trends in worship that are just not, uh, not good, not biblical. And uh, so about the same time, it was, uh, it was offered as a criticism that the domestication of, of transcendence, or the domestication of theology, meant that all these things have become so familiar to us, kind of like growing up in a family, in a domestic setting, in a home. You know where everything is, you feel at home there, the moment you walk in the door, you relax. Uh, you know, part of what makes home a home is you can handle this, can't handle what goes on in the whole world, but we can handle what goes on, you know, in these four walls. The problem is that we can never faithfully address the text of the Word of God as if it's domesticated. As if, okay, we feel at home here now. We, we, you know, this is, this is now home. We're, we're, we're at home in this, and uh, it doesn't shock us anymore. You know, if you're shocked by a room in your house, there's a problem. Uh, but we should be shocked by Scripture over and over again. Because this is not a domesticated reality. This is the word, every single word of it, of the one true and living God. In thinking about Christmas, there are two particular texts that come to my mind 
that absolutely resist the domestication that many people would, uh, would attempt or, or just find comfort in. And, and they both resist reducing Christmas or our celebration of the incarnation of Christ into sentimentality. Now, there's a sentimental aspect to it. It's one of the reasons why we sing Lutheran songs at Christmas, like in a way in a manger, because you know, Luther had a very sentimental side to him. It's a part of what makes us appreciate him, is that he appears very much like us. You know, he had, uh, he had flashes of anger, righteous indignation, he worried about fear, he uh, clearly, uh, you know, reflects uh, his own mixture of boldness and, and timidity. He had great love. He had great love that developed uh, for his wife, Katie, and a great love for his children. And he wasn't afraid to speak in those terms and to be sentimental. And there's a part of the British tradition that says, well, look how German that is. And that's why, as I mentioned, even the Christmas we celebrate in the English-speaking world is at least traceable to the influence of Lutheranism in the, in the English-speaking world. But that sounds very loose, like some kind of theological conspiracy. No, the way that all of this became translated into the American Christmas was not through Lutheran preachers, but through a Lutheran prince who happened to marry uh, Queen Victoria. So it's uh, Albert of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha uh, who brings in so much of this into the British royal family tradition. And I think I've mentioned here before, you've probably heard me talk about this. Uh, he puts up a Christmas tree and uh, invites the children for the main meal, which was unthinkable at the time. And uh, it becomes domesticated. In fact, uh, it... it, it it becomes a domesticized picture. And so in the British uh, illustrated journals of the time, there was a picture of Queen Victoria complete in throne dress. Complete in throne dress. And Albert complete in throne dress. And their children, you know, frolicking on Christmas. And uh, I'll, I'll just say that's not the way it looks at our house. It looks really strange, but you have to realize how human all of a sudden that looked to the English. I mean, here, they're with their children celebrating Christmas around the Christmas tree. And uh, by the way, I, I think I've mentioned to you, I just love cultural history. That was brought over by Thomas Nast into his New York newspaper, but uh, he dressed down the royals. Again, still, still a lot of bad feeling towards the British monarchy. So no sword on Prince Albert, and uh, the queen was toned down a bit. But nonetheless, it was actually something that, that, like, the Franklin Roosevelt family had not had anything like that until it became, you know, very much a part of the 19th century. And so, you know, about the time Franklin Roosevelt is a boy in the late 19th century, you all of a sudden have Americans who are doing the same thing. All that just to say that there is sentiment and we're not afraid of it. There's sentiment in the Christmas carols that we sing. There's sentiment and, of course, 
just our experience of Christmas and uh, of, of, of what the festival, the incarnation means to us as individuals, as families, as a church family. There is sentiment. If, 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 if we're lacking the sentiment, we're lacking something essential to how God made us in his image. But sentimentality can't rule. And, and so, you know, the, we, we don't come to bathe in sentimentality. We come to immerse ourselves in biblical truth. And these two texts to which I often return are John 1 and Hebrews 1. Because both of them resist the reduction. Both of them make these radical claims about what the incarnation means. And at least a part of what we ought to do this morning is face squarely on Christmas Eve a text like the introduction to Hebrews chapter 1. So let's look at the text. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, remember that we are not given the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. This is often referred to as a general epistle. That is, it was given for the whole church. It's not addressed to a location. The background to this was the spread of Christianity in Alexandrian Judaism. So, in particular, the Jews of Alexandria and Egypt, uh, we know that the, the gospel had reached them, and uh, there's this enormous uh, influence of Alexandrian Christianity on the, uh, on the course of the early church. This looks very much like a product of that New Testament movement. The writer of the book of Hebrews is actually writing to Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that reason, it's particularly helpful to us. It uh, helps us to do what we can only describe as biblical theology. So this is an immediate effort, as we saw in John chapter 1 last week, to connect the Old Testament and the New Testament. And John, as we saw, Genesis 1, John 1, in absolute parallel all going back in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here, right in the opening, in the very first phrase of Hebrews, is an affirmation of all of God's revelation in ages past. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, even before we get to the by the prophets, long ago and in many ways, the multitude of the forms of divine revelation just in the Old Testament are astounding. So in the very beginning, as Adam and Eve were in the garden, they hear the voice of the Lord directly speaking to them in the cool of the day. And, and then just to kind of summarize, and let's just be anecdotal for a moment, there are other forms of divine revelation in, in the Old Testament. Certainly you have, for example, you have Sinai. You have the, the law, most classically the Ten Commandments given to Moses on the mountain. 
And uh, this was a theophany where the, you know, the great cloud appears and the, and, and the, the, the thunder and the lightning appear and, and the voice of the Lord is heard and the, the mountain shakes. There are other forms of divine revelation. God spoke to Moses from a bush that burned and was not consumed. Now, that is not the form of divine revelation we have here. We don't come in this room to look at a burning bush. It is interesting that when you go into some synagogues, uh, if there's stained glass window or there's any form of symbolism, uh, often you'll see a, a burning bush as a, just a symbol of Jewish identity. God's voice was heard from this bush that burned and was not consumed. There are other forms of divine speech. And uh, I guess the most bizarre of them is Balaam's donkey. You know, you think of all the vessels through whom God speaks. Balaam's donkey was, was I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's an amazing thing. Now, again, God was not giving the law. He was not offering prophecy. But Balaam's, Balaam's animal spoke. Now, by the time we get to the classic period of divine revelation that is being addressed here, we talk about the prophets. Long ago, in many ways, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I think this is where the Christian imagination needs to be restructured because our, the Christian imagination misses an awful lot of time. Indeed, let's just say roughly something like 500 years. When was the last time a prophet spoke in Israel? I mean, let's just fast forward to the time of Caesar Augustus. Let's just go to Bethlehem. How long had it been since a prophet had appeared in Israel? Centuries. Centuries. This is not what is wired into the evangelical consciousness. We, we tend to have wired into our imagination and biblical theology the fact that there's the Old Testament and then there's the New Testament. No, that's not wrong. But the problem is, there's the Old Testament as we have it, and then there are silent centuries. Silent centuries. It staggers the imagination. God spoke in many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So the identity of Israel is built upon the two magisterial categories of divine revelation. They become the scriptural categories of divine revelation, so much that they are the 
summary of what we now call the Old Testament in the canon of Scripture, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. So by the time Jesus speaks and there are those speaking to Jesus, law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. And of course, you speak of the law, you're speaking of Sinai, you're speaking of centuries, centuries past, you're talking about the prophets, you're still talking about centuries past. It is very interesting how the first two words are often not noticed long ago, long ago. You know, when Christians celebrate Advent and, uh, and we talk about these things, we sometimes talk about waiting. But I don't think most Christians pause for a moment to think about what that waiting looked like. This wasn't like a waiting between May and June. Uh, This is not a waiting that we can imagine. This is a waiting of centuries. And in that century, silence. I I don't know how we would uh, experience that ourselves. We have the evidence of intertestamental Judaism in terms of how it handled it. And, And for one thing... In terms of adaptation, not only to the waiting, but in the adaptation to the political realities of the day. One thing that had arisen that, again, many evangelical Christians don't think about is the role of the rabbi. So in those centuries in which there was no prophet, Authority shifted to a clerisy, as I say, a clergy. It shifted to a, to a class of those who were trained in the Scripture, but they were particularly trained in the law. And the rabbi became the center of, of life in the synagogue, and in many ways the center of life in the community. And, and in, in this case, the rabbis were not, as we think of, like parish pastors. You weren't the rabbi of the synagogue. The rabbinate was a class of those who were trained. And, uh, and yet, as, as you can imagine, throughout these centuries, and, and with the rise of the rabbi, the rabbinate, it took on an authority of its own, which is what you see in the New Testament. In other words, when the rabbis are, are involved in the New Testament, um, the the authority that they bring with them is the authority of this class of persons. God doesn't speak now to us. We're not, we're not looking for more scripture. We have the law and the prophets. And the last prophet arose centuries ago in Israel. Now, now we have those who become the scholars of the law and the prophets, but in particular the law. And this is where we live, so we can understand how that works. Uh, this is why we need biblical counseling, and even more importantly than that, we need the exposition of God's word in the pulpit. Is because God's people have real issues. Uh, there are real things to figure out. You know, do I buy this piece of property or not? Is this is this legitimate or not? You know, how, what what do we do with this marriage? What do we do with these children? I mean, all, all this comes up, and so the authority shifted into this rabbinical structure, which is one of the reasons that by the time you have Jesus in his public ministry and people recognize him as a rabbi, they come to him and ask questions. Some of them are stupid questions. Some of them are set-up questions, but it's even more interesting to me that they ask him like normal rabbi questions. Like, you know, 
I got a brother. Yeah, everybody's got a brother, all right? You know how that rabbi question is going to go. You know, I, how, how do I deal with this? And Jesus wanted to said, you know, who, and there's a dispute over property. And, or, or it, anyway, it just, who, who assigned me this role? The words long ago are just crucial here. So here's the good news of the gospel. Here is, here is a summary, even, even as we find in the book of Hebrews, this astounding introduction. And in it is this incredible bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between promise and fulfillment, but it begins speaking of the forms of divine revelation, and the first two words, however, are long ago. Long ago, and many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. One of the hardest questions in biblical theology is figuring out how much the Jews should have figured out. That's about as honestly as I could put it. I don't think I put it that succinctly before, but that's exactly it. Trying to figure out how much the Jews should have figured out. By the time you come to the introduction to, say, the Gospels of Luke and Matthew, it's clear that the early church has figured out a lot. And, of course, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's not, we're not just saying Matthew and Luke figured this out. But... The New Testament church had come to understand, was coming to understand what it meant that this baby born in Bethlehem was a Savior who was Christ, the Lord. Here's the hardest question. Was Israel in any sense expecting the revelation of God by God's Son? The honest answer is really no. No. Now, we also looked at a couple of other texts. And uh, I did this in graduation ceremonies in December, this December and last, looking at Simeon and at Anna and their testimony. So, the New Testament makes clear there were some who were looking for the baby. There were some who were looking for the fulfillment of God's promises in this way. And you might put it differently. There were some who recognized in this baby the fulfillment of the promise that God had given. But if you just ask the bigger question, was Israel anticipating revelation by the Son of God incarnate? The answer is no. The answer is no. Or at least there's no evidence that Israel was, but there's evidence in the scripture that Israel should have. It's easy for us on the other side of Bethlehem, on the other side of Jesus, on the other side even of the canonization of scripture to say, well, we, it, they should have figured this out. But let's just be honest and say, you know, this is, this is a part of biblical theology as well. The fact that he came into his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to be the sons of God. It's a shocking realization 
that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. It's, it's an astounding statement. It's just, you know, it's a few words. And it begins with long ago, and then that we're at but now. And, and, and that there's the great distinction. Everything in the past is long ago, and indeed longer ago than most evangelicals imagine. Long ago, and then the but now. But now, in these days, but in these days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, another subset of biblical theology is this. When God speaks, he saves. We're saved by the fact that God speaks. Had God not spoken to us, we would be absolutely lost. That's why I often tell people, I think, uh, you know, the most important book title for me as a young Christian was Francis Schaeffer's, He is There and He is Not Silent. Because those two phrases, you know, just really are absolutely essential. And even the title of his book helped me a whole lot. He is there and he is not silent. If he were there and silent, we'd be lost. But he is there and he is not silent. And in these latter days, in these days, he has spoken to us by his son. Again, I just want to say, this is not presented in any way as a sentimental thought. Obviously, we're sentimental people, so there's sentiment to it that God loved us so much he sent his son. But the point is, just hear the radical statement. In these days, God has spoken to us by his son. This is a completely different category. Put law and the prophets over here. Can you imagine that anyone could come to Israel? And this is, this is fascinating. Just think about this. Someone comes to Israel, faithful Israel. You know, Messiah expecting Israel. Uh, law and prophet, obedient Israel. During those centuries, they said, you know, um, um, God's going to speak through his son. I, I think, again, it would be a shocking category. And I think the question would be, how? How? How, how, how will that happen? And, of course, again, there were dots that should have been connected. There, there was promise, there was even detail there in the prophets. But Israel didn't see it. And in these last days, in these days, now God has spoken through his son. It's just, it's just more astounding than we could imagine. Behind that, of course, is the reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So in other words, the son did not speak through a bush that was not Consumed. The, the sun did not speak through the thunder in the giving of the law at Sinai. Obviously, in our Trinitarian theology, we believe the sun was very much there. But my point is, when, when he's now speaking to us through his son, this means his son among us. And, and that, that is the background assumption here of Hebrews, because the gospel has been preached to them. In other words, the, re, the fact that this letter or this epistle exists is because the gospel was preached to them and they believed. And so behind this, God has spoken to us in his son is the complete affirmation of the incarnation of the son of God in human flesh. In these last days, in these days, our days, in this age, 
God has spoken to us by his son. There, there's the radical truth. And it's put forward in the in most incredible economy of words. It begins with long ago and many times and, and, and in many ways. And then you end up, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Boom. But the text isn't in there. Look closely here in verse 2. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The second phrase is easier for us to understand than the first. We pass over the first phrase a bit more quickly. So let us look at the second phrase, through whom he also created the world. And last Lord's Day, we looked at that in John chapter 1. The Son is the agent through whom all that is made was made. And uh, so, when he came into his own, he came into a cosmos that he made. Having taken the form of, that is the incarnation of, the flesh of, the human creature he had made. But the phrase that, that comes before... In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now we have another problem, and it's just a distance and time problem, a culture problem. We, We don't speak in the same sense of an heir as this means. This is an assignment of possession, and with the possession comes authority. So this is the father giving to the son all things. And thus the authority with having been given all things. He is the heir. Of course, that will set up the New Testament understanding that in Christ... We are joint heirs with Christ. The point is here, the preeminence of Christ. And the preeminence of Christ is made clear in the fact that he is the son whom the father appointed the heir of all things. So there's nothing outside the sovereignty of the son. Nothing. This is very important for us to know. All things are now given to him. As Jesus said at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, all authority is given to me. All authority. There is nothing outside my authority. I and the Father are one. That is echoed here. He is appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he, that is the Father, created the world. And then look at verse 3. There's more to come. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know, uh, just about every Christian who's been in church for any length of time knows a Greek word or two. When I was a teenager, the word everybody knew was agape. There were music groups named agape. Uh, Much was made of agape, one of the multivalent words 
in the Greek language for love. And, and I would say, as a theologian, too much was made of agape. Not that you can speak too much of the love of God, but too much was explained by supposedly knowing this word. There are probably fewer Hebrew words known. But one of them that I have heard in evangelical circles is the word Shekinah, for the glory of God. And so you'll hear every once in a while, I've been in a church where they say, Lord, show us your Shekinah. And they like all of a sudden, you know, speaking one language and you just shifted there at the end. God's, God's listening carefully. All right. It is this, this visible glory. This text points beyond that, but not less than that. When in verse 3 we're told he is the radiance, which is indeed that, which is the visible glory of God in the incarnation. So in the incarnation, in, in, in the fact that he has assumed human flesh, that flesh is the radiance of the glory of God. So you want to see it? Don't go to the temple to see it. Don't, uh, don't go in the woods to see it. Don't go to the depths of the sea to see it. You look to the sun to see it. He is the radiance of the glory of God, which, which is, is to say, this is God's own radiance. And then the next phrase, the exact imprint of his nature Now, throughout the history of the Christian church, this has been a tricky phrase. It's, uh, it's tricky to say it rightly now. It's, it's quite possible to just get it slightly wrong, and that could lead to greater wrong. The, the, the phrase, and again, with a Greek word, you know, people look at this and say, well, he's the icon. He is the, uh, he's, the, he's the imprint, the exact imprint of God's nature. The important thing to recognize here is that this isn't just about how Jesus looks. This is about who Jesus is. So this is not just a picture of an imprint, like an icon you put on a wall that has a has a picture, like you look to Jesus, and it's just like looking to that icon. You now see, you see a, a human body, you see a visible face, you see a, a, a recognizable image. It's not just that. It is that in totality, he is the exact imprint of the Father. He uh, is the exact imprint of his nature. Now, I have to be careful here because the very fact we're talking about the incarnation of the Son means we're talking about a distinction between the Father and the Son, the Son who has assumed flesh and dwelt among us. But even in his flesh, he is the direct imprint of God, the Father. And that's tricky for us. It doesn't mean God looks like Jesus in a physical sense because God doesn't have a body. There's a distinction between the Father and the Son. But 
to us, Jesus appears by God's revelatory grace as the exact imprint of the Father. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And here's his sovereignty. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So here again is the shocking nature of all this. And, and we're, we're just like in John 1 in the opening verses, we're, we're just like three verses in and already the entire cosmos is turned upside down. Or you might even say more specifically, the entire cosmos is claimed. You know, people are out there looking for the unitary explanation theory of all things. What in physics they call the theory of everything. Well, here's the theory of everything. Jesus, he upholds all things by his power. He is, the New Testament will tell us, the one to whom all things have been made subject, whether they be rulers or powers or principalities. All things are under his authority. He's been given authority over all things. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he not only was the word through whom the Father brought the cosmos into existence. He's the word who currently, this millisecond, is upholding the existence of the cosmos by his power. So the only reason why we are here, this church is here, this city is here, this planet is here, this cosmos exists, is because right now, Jesus, the Lord, over all of it, wills its continued existence under his authority as given him by the Son. He's given him by the Father. If he ceases thus to exercise that will, we cease to exist. Again, people think about Christmas, they think about the baby born in Bethlehem. Yes, yes, yes. Yes to all of that. Yes to angels. Yes to the manger. Uh, yes to carols. Yes to all that. But you'll notice that the opening to the book of Hebrews is not exactly about that. It's just even more so about that. And you'll notice that also in the economy of this introduction, it's not just the person of Christ and the authority of Christ that is affirmed, but also the saving work of Christ. Because after we are told he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, the very next phrase, still in verse 3, is this, after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then in verse 4 and following, and in particular in verse 5 and the continuation of the first chapter of Hebrews, you have more data given, more Illustration given references back to the Old Testament statements in which uh, Jesus is compared to the angels and the statements that the fathers made to Jesus is shown to have been infinitely greater than the statements made to angels. This may have to do with the preoccupation 
of angels in the intertestamental period. And one of the reasons for that we might understand is the silence of the prophets throughout all of those centuries. And a, a part of getting people ready may well have been the anticipation that became focused in angels during that intertestamental period when the messengers of God were being looked for. And then maybe that helps us to understand what it meant when the angelic host appeared and said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. For unto you this day is born a Savior in the city of Bethlehem who is Christ the Lord. And so that expectation about the angels was, was building, you know, if we haven't heard from a prophet. Maybe we'll hear from angels. Well, how about a heavenly host? How about a sky filled with angels declaring that they're not the point, but rather the baby is the point. And here in the remainder of chapter 1, Jesus is compared to the angels. It's the angels that bear testimony of him. It is not he who bears testimony of the angels. But in verse 4, Continuing in the second half of verse 3 about his saving work after making purification for sins. There's his substitutionary atonement, just referred to that way, having made purification for sins. And remember, this is largely written to an original audience of Jews who become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the summary of what they know to be the saving work of Christ. He has fulfilled all things made necessary by the law. He's made the perfect sacrifice for sin. And having done so, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So there's much more to come, of course, in Hebrews, but I just thought it might be profitable on this Christmas Eve for us to just look at this text. There's a sense in which our chronological and theological imagination is not up to the task of thinking about centuries of waiting. It's just not. That, that's why Advent's always appeared to be kind of strange to me. I'm not saying I'm against an Advent calendar. I'm not saying I'm against Advent as, a, as an observance. I'm just saying it's, it feels very strange to me because... You can't hold a Christian service merely in anticipation. You can only hold a Christian service in the proclamation of the gospel. So that for which we are waiting is here. He is here. And, and, and this is done. And for 2,000 years, the church has been declaring that it is finished. And so there's a sense in which this waiting is difficult for us to imagine. But it is right that we go back into those centuries of waiting and recognize that this is a longer period of waiting than our imaginations can handle. This is much longer than the existence of the United States of America. This is multiple centuries of waiting. And behind that, you had during the period of the law and during the period of the prophets, you had the waiting that's already begun for the ultimate purpose of God's redemption of his people and the coming of the Messiah, it's all there. It's, it's centuries upon centuries upon centuries of waiting, and we're not good at waiting hours. So I speak to you as one who confesses my incompetence at feeling the weight of this waiting. I just, 
I know I can't. I think it's important that I know I can't. I can try to describe it, but I didn't live it. And I need to live this kind of waiting. You have to recognize that you're waiting because your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather waited and your great-great-great-great-grandson will wait. Strauss and Howe, in their work on history, make the argument that the greatest reach of the average human being is two generations up and two generations down. And, and, and that's pretty much the way we experience it. I uh, have letters from my great-grandfather. I sat in the lap of one of my great-grandmothers, but I really didn't know them. But I knew my grandparents, and Mary and I now have grandchildren, and we got stories to tell. We know them. I mean, we really know them in the sense that I really knew my grandparents. I can go two up. I can go two down. But, you know, our oldest grandson is eight. And uh, I'd love to see great-grandchildren. I, I, I think that would be a magnificent thing but I'm not going to watch them grow up. That's, that's just a human time frame. Okay, you need lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of those time frames to add up to the centuries of waiting. You don't even know your ancestors in all that time, and you don't know those who come after you. You just know you're in a common chain of waiting. And the good news of Christmas is that the wait is over. Long ago, at many times and in many at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, and thus we're saved. Let's pray together, Father. We're just so thankful for all You've given us in Your Word. Thank You for this definitive Word, which shatters. All claims about Christ that fall short of the truth. Father, we exult in the fact that you have spoken in your Son to whom we are saved. And Father, it is in the name of the Son that we now pray. Even that name, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Merry Christmas to each of you and your families. It's been wonderful to gather with you on this Lord's Day.